0: Hello, wave, okay, good. I have more authority now, even than before. It booms from side to side, not just from the front now as well. Is this sense of uh, just trusting God, you've heard that, right? Like people say, oh, just, just trust God, you'll be all right. Is that just lip service and religious jargon that ends up being meaningless and empty because of the way that we use it? I wonder if you found that when people give advice and it begins with the word just, Uh, you probably shouldn't trust it. Just pray, just trust, just down it. (laughs) Even just do it, right? Nike seems to tell us we're just to do it, but you and I know that I can't hang in the air like Michael Jordan can or play tennis without sweating like Roger Federer can. These are all fallacies. They're not true. We can't just do it. What does it mean to trust? Not just trust, but to genuinely trust, to really trust. Can we trust? Should we trust? We're going to look at um, another encounter today. We're going through a series um, on the encounters with goodness. And last week we looked at Isaac. And next week um, David's going to be looking at Mary Magdalene, David Robinson. And this week we're looking at Moses. We're going to look at some of the lessons we can learn from Moses, so why don't we pray now as we begin that and and ask the Lord to to lead us in that. Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy God, you are a God who who speaks, who leads, who guides, who doesn't leave us in the dark. We ask that you would light up our path even in these next few moments as, as I preach. Would you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and our hearts and um, do what's pleasing to you. Uh, with the words that are mine and that are empty uh, fall to the side. But those that are of you, um, do something in our lives. Actually allow us to, to really trust. Not just give lip service to that, but to really trust in your son and by your spirit. We pray this in, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're led. We're looking at uh, God's leading of Moses as he leads Uh, the Israelite people out of Egypt. And we're going to look at a couple of things, really. How is Moses led to trust, and how might we be led to trust? How did Moses trust? How is he led to trust, and how might we trust? Our passage, uh, and thank you again, Michael, for reading that long one, Um, it's a crazy culmination of God leading the Israelite people out of Egypt with Moses at the helm. The passage we had read is quite frenetic. I don't know if you noticed that. Michael's very measured and he he speaks of it very calmly. In many ways, there's lots going on. It feels like things are coming from all different angles. Let's go this way, no, this way. What? Why are they taking the long way round? Oh, they're right there. Uh, What are we doing? Oh, water. There's lots of things going on. Quite near the middle, we read, Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Just be still. Just stand firm. What? Moses, are you losing your marbles? Are you unhinged? It reminds me of, of fighting the English. And not me personally, <laughs> uh, but in, in, in uh, Braveheart the film. Who's watched Braveheart before? Okay, many of you. William Wallace is leading the the Scottish soldiers for the first time. The English have their uniforms, sort of a wry smile from some English people here. Um, The English have uniforms, sophisticated weapons, military, strategy, while the Scots seem only to have kilts and their bare bottoms. Kilts, uh, bare bottoms, and a lot of heart to fight for freedom. They have homemade spears, which they will have to release together at just the right time or it's not gonna work. So as the English are thundering uh, towards them, we see the men, a mixture of courage, of fear, of readiness, of terror, of hope. Hold! Do you remember that part? Hold! Hold! As we watch, we wonder, will they trust their leader enough to wait when their lives are in danger and when everything inside them wants to just throw the spears and head the other direction? Of course, they... Do hold. They wait until Mel Gibson, or should I say William Wallace, uh, gives the right word. They release their homemade spears at the right time. The English turn and run. The underdogs win this round. And the Scots begin their battle towards freedom. I'm inspired, are you? The Israelites are seeking freedom as well. Moses says the same to them. Hold. Stand firm. Hold. Be still, hold. The book of Exodus, you see, begins just as Israel is being formed as a people. Joseph and his technicolour dream coat and his technicolour dream interpreting saved from prison and he rises to the highest position um, in, uh, in, in Egypt behind Pharaoh. His plan to save food during plenty in order to prepare for famine has saved Egypt. And amazingly, it saves his brothers too who bring his father, Jacob, and the rest of their families to Egypt to settle. And they settle and grow exponentially and become um, a a people themselves. The Egyptians are scared of this growing group of people. And so what do they do? They rule with fear. They make them scared. They kill their male babies that are born more than this later, so that they won't grow. They instruct the nurses to kill them um, just as they come out of the womb so that they won't grow. They enslave them, they dehumanize them, they force them into labor and slavery. But God hears the cries of his people and says he's going to come and do something about it. And so he does so. And it's the greatest escape act you've ever seen. Forget um, Ocean's 11 or Italian Job or Shawshank Redemption. The Lord uses the hand of his servant Moses to bring about the 10 plagues that eventually force the hand of Pharaoh to let his people go, to let God's people go. And it leads to the Exodus. Exodus is the book, uh, and the word itself has come to mean uh, a mass departure of people, people all leaving at one time. And apparently the word was adopted into English via Latin from the Greek, where the words um, out of and road are put together to literally mean the road out. The Exodus happens, the road out happens in miraculous and wonderful ways in the middle of the night, the people leave Egypt. And when, uh, but then Pharaoh, believing he's made a mistake, changes his mind and goes after them with chariots. And here we are. As the Egyptians approach, Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Hold. How is Moses led to such a place that he can follow with such trust and therefore lead with such peace? Even despite all that's going on, even despite the chariots coming and probably hearing them and, and, and seeing them from a distance. On first reading, you'd probably think, surely only someone with superhuman, approaching superhuman um, faith and trust could say this in the middle of a battle with enemies approaching, stand firm, be still, Hold. I find myself, as I hear this passage, thinking to myself, well, it's easy for him to say. It's easy for Moses. Look at what he does in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I mean, come on, he only goes and parts the sea. Obviously, he's going to be trusting in God if he has, like, power like that to do that. It's too improbable. It's too ridiculous. It's too unlikely. It's also too easy, too powerful, and too uh, visible. At least make it more believable if you want me to learn from it. Never mind believe it. I get these thoughts. I understand some of the sentiment behind those. But before Moses is able to trust God's leading in such ways that are so visible and and, and obvious, we can actually see the ways that God has led him in ways that are much more subtle. And so I just want to kind of do that. We see that God has led him in in these kind of very visible ways and is using him in very visible ways. But I just want to go back a few steps and show that God has actually led him up to this point in ways that are much more subtle as well. Let me read from Exodus chapter 2. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister um, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Before the Exodus and before leading the Israelites through the Red Sea with awe-inspiring power and trust that's very powerful and very visible, we see God's work in his life in ways that are much more subtle. We see Moses was involved in his own exodus of sorts, his own road out, or should we say his basket out of the water. He was one of the male babies that were ordered to be killed by Pharaoh, but God had other plans. Notice the other woman who just so happened to be there, the resourceful and loving mother who hid him and made a waterproof and floating bassinet for him to survive in. The word for that is... uh, that's used there is the same word as Noah's ark, that basket there. God provides. The sister Miriam, who was curious and hopeful enough to wait to see what would happen. And Pharaoh's daughter, who just so happened to be getting ready to bathe in this river. God was leading Moses, even at this early stage, even in what he was named and what he would eventually do. God seemed to be doing something. His name meant, I drew him out of the water. seems utterly appropriate much better than Phil's name which is lover of horses which she told us last week which she obviously resents and needs some counseling about i think <laughs> um, or mine which is uh, Lloyd means gray in welsh which was always rather uninspiring or my chinese name which is Loi Hung which means eternal and patient neither of which really work for me I drew him out of the water. God seemed to know what was going on with his life, with his story, what he would do. God had a plan for Moses, the one drawn out of the water at three months old. Yes, we can focus on the visible leading of God through Moses and his staff and the hands that parted the water and miss the subtle leading of God even before he was born. God's goodness is not only seen in victorious Exodus stories that result in Disney films and Prince of Egypt, cartoons, but somehow mysteriously, subtly also to be found despite painful and evil circumstances that required mother to give up her son in order to save his life, in order that God might use him to save their lives eventually. What if you were to trust more today that God works not only in the grand gestures, in the miraculous, in the big picture stuff, in the miraculous moments, but also in the subtle in the details the goodness can come through them the person you sit next to on the on the bus or the reaction that you have to what's being said or a, a memory that you have just recently remembered it's easy for Moses we might think, look at how he's led all these miraculous things but yes let's look deeper let's look. Another example of this, we've just uh, seen the parting of the Red Sea, the waters parting, but let's look at this pillar of fire and cloud. Another one of these, all right, okay, it's easy for him to do. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert, verse 20. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. That's chapter 13. And then in uh, chapter 14, 19 and 20, then the angel of the Lord who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Perhaps you're thinking, of course it's easy to trust in the goodness of God when he literally has a pillar of cloud and fire protecting and guiding you. That's easy. It's right there in front of you. It's external to them. It was a pillar of fire and cloud ahead of them. If there was a pillar of fire and cloud guiding my life, I wouldn't need Google Maps to get places. I wouldn't need to know whether this is the right decision or not. We would do whatever God would say. You would go. And though we don't know what it's like to have a (laughs) pillar of fire in the sky, we can kind of smell what it's like today, can't we? I can smell it here a bit. But again, there's some wisdom in rewinding a bit and realizing that beyond the external or before the external, there was a lot that was going on internal to Moses. The story of Moses is not pretty. Despite growing up in the palace, Moses did not know how he belonged. He was in the Egyptian palace, but not Egyptian by blood. He lived in two worlds and yet was not fully home in either place because he was an outsider among his own people and among those who raised him. I think it's fair to say that he would have had question marks about his identity, about his belonging, his place. And when we have that, and I can speak a little from experience of that, we develop coping mechanisms for this. This is the subconscious stuff that when we were young, and help keep us alive and help us survive, but cements and does something in our beings and our psyches that actually come to affect us as adults and influence how we do things when we grow up. It seems that for Moses, one of those survival mechanisms was to repress his anger. Because we read that one day his anger was so strong and so violent that he exploded into violent rage. Let me continue with Exodus chapter 2. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them At their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. What had been present under the surface of his life was no longer in the surface, and it could no longer be ignored. One of the commentaries said to me, Moses flees and runs away. He flees. He hides. He marries into a shepherd family, and he learns there to shepherd even as he is on the run. And as he is hiding, almost because he is hiding, he encounters God in the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3 says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro and of his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire and within a bush. Again, it's okay for for Moses, isn't it? that He gets a burning bush. He gets something that doesn't burn up, that goes in front of him, that 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 speaks and actually guides him in really obvious ways. But notice how the far side of the wilderness was right next to the mountain of God. Even in his hiding, God is working in him, and God's wanting to not just do something external to him and make him a leader, but actually to do something internal in him. His murderous past he was hiding from didn't lead automatically to his change. Not even close but it led to wilderness and solitude that led eventually to encounter. As he encountered the God who encountered him first, he comes face to face with his fear, with his anger. And there God speaks to him, reveals himself to him and calls him to to something different. He's called to lead the people out of Israel. But he's run away from Egypt, I should say. He couldn't think of anything worse. God reveals himself to Moses. He says, I am who I am, I will be with you. And God confronts his fear. If you read that chapter, I encourage you to do that, um, chapter, t- chapter 3. It's almost comical how scared Moses actually is. He's giving every excuse why he shouldn't be the one who does it. But he actually can't escape from the work God wants him to do, the eternal, internal work. God says to him, don't fear Pharaoh. I realize Uh, that you're scared, but please realize all you need to trust is me. I am who I am. I will be with you. You belong to me, and I will go ahead of you. And so there's plenty of external guidance here for Moses, but something internal is going on as well. God cares about under the surface. God cares about the dark part of Moses' heart. He doesn't leave him as he is. I don't know if that's encouraging for you or um, scary, that God wants to deal with under the surface. When it comes to the proverbial and literal duck who is calm on top and furiously paddling underneath, God cares about what's going on underneath those frenetic legs of the duck. The iceberg that's barely seen at the top but has a mass underneath That's huge. God cares about what is underneath the surface. The Loch Ness Monster or Ogopogo lurking beneath the surface of our lives. He actually cares about that as well. The remarkable thing is this. God is able to redeem and restore and renew Moses' past. Moses has a passion for his people that was disordered. He had a fear of being caught and found out and runs to the wilderness. He has a murderous past and a guilty conscience. And none of these we would wish upon Moses. But God actually does something internal in him before actually doing something external with him. Moses' passion for his people leads to Israel's freedom. His fear leads to trust. Guilt. For Moses became an experience of forgiveness and of grace. You see, God cares about under the surface, our under the surface, and He cares too much to leave us as we are. He cares us. He cares about us as a church too, too much to leave us as we are as well. And so, as we navigate this next season together, however that looks for us. We need not shy away from the hard stuff, the darker stuff. We see in Moses that somehow fruit came in due time. And so we might begin to be open to what that internal work looks like for for, for us as, as a community here, that under the surface we can trust that he cares about, not just the, the shiny, not just the, the graphics, not just the, the web pages, but about what's going on in, in our hearts, the health of our communities, our community groups, our leaders, the very people that we are and are becoming. God doesn't shy away from the hard stuff or the, the dark stuff. What would it look like for us to listen to our lives, for us to listen to our own stories, to to be those who listen to our lives and listen to our own stories, whether that's in our church or actually in our own lives. Our community group are going to be doing um, a book that helps us navigate that little bit about understanding our own stories and how to place that within God's story in our lives. Um, I did a course last year on narrative-focused trauma care, and uh, the guy who... Uh, led that, has, has written a book on it for, for, for communities to do, and it's called To Be Told. And so it's thinking about how um, our stories kind of shape our now, and it feels like um, an apt time for, for us to do that. I think it's an apt time any time, but actually um, digging deep into, into our stories is, is, is helpful. I find that to be the case. I went on a leadership course um, a few years ago. and I think, I, I'm not sure if I've said this in this context before, but um, we did one session called Life on the Balcony And um, the the leader of that gave us a big A5 sheet of paper and just lots of little sticky notes, lots of different colours, and just said, map out your life, tell me about the framework of your life. Look from the balcony and look down and see what's been going on um, in in, in the big things um, of your life. I put the first four things were, were significant deaths in my life of grandparents of a good friend from school, of a younger brother who died. I realized that my life was um, framed by these deaths. It was so stark to me. I hadn't realized that before. But I think through that God's been doing something, helped me to see, maybe that's why there's a, a, a fear or a, I don't know, um, a loss that, that, that has been there and present in my own life he wants to do something with, that he doesn't need to kind of just have me um, scoot over and be like the duck that um, is fine on top but down below is, is struggling and his, his quadriceps are, are, are running out of energy, but that he wants to do something under the surface with the hard stuff, with the dark stuff, with the monsters that even that are there. What would it look like to embrace wilderness, to see those ways in which we failed, leading us away from the Lord, perhaps, but actually allowing that to lead us eventually to encounter with him in a new way. Moses runs away. And that doesn't make him change on its own, but it leads to something, solitude, right? Of experience, of encounter, of seeing that God wants to do something in him. What would it look like to embrace wilderness, to anticipate encounter in your life? so that we would grow softer and more gentle and more open to the Lord's leading. I don't know what you think um, about, about um, the Queen. Um, I realize that has some kind of colonial connotations that, that I'm understanding more now that I'm not in the UK, living in the UK, I, I, I get that and, and I appreciate that. I was um, kind of saddened uh, by her death. I mean, it sounds obvious. But I think we should be saddened by people's death, whatever we think of of their background or or, or story. I've never really been bothered. Uh, that surprised me. I've never been bothered by the Queen from the uh, in the past. I guess my kind of being north of the border. Uh, she's the Queen of England. I know she's Queen of, Queen of the UK, the United Kingdom, the Commonwealth. But I've I've kind of not known what to do with um, her. I've realised that she is like a, a big tree out in the garden that's always been there that now is no longer there. Um, But I've never had strong feelings until recent years when um, she has seemed to be softer in her Christmas addresses, speaking of her faith in Jesus, how um, his teaching inspires her, how she wants to live like him, how um, she wanted to have a living and active faith in him, how she wanted to put her crown at the feet of Jesus. I'm intrigued by those who are older, who still love the Lord. I think it's easy to get harder as we get older. I love the stories of of people who have stood the test of time and who have allowed Jesus to stand the test of time, and it feels like she did that. She trusted him and had seen his goodness leading her in a role she never chose, with authority she never earned, but what she did with dignity and faith and trust, and there seems to be something commendable about that. What can we do to be open to allowing God to lead us uh, to trust in him more and more as the years go on? I know I am young to some, but but middle-aged to others. Um, What does it look like for us as the years go by to be softer, to trust him more, to not just deal in the external, but to allow the internal to do something? How can we trust enough to seek this encounter to trust when all around us is chaos. In verse nine of uh, Exodus 14, it says this, the Egyptians, all pharaohs, horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Ziphon. This word here um, for pursue actually comes um, in this passage that we read five times. Uh, The Hebrew word is radaph, And it's also found in another surprising place. This word for pursue. The, the, The Egyptians are pursuing them, pursuing them, pursuing them, pursuing them, pursuing them. This word in the Hebrew also comes up in Psalm 23. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me, will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Israelites had the armies of Pharaoh pursuing them, but something else came in between them. It feels like it was the goodness and mercy of God protecting them, leading them. This pillar of cloud and fire was God's presence with them, leading them forward, leading them to freedom. It leads and protects them, and they come out the other side. I do struggle with what to do with this, though, because afterwards, you will know, perhaps better than I do, that they fail, they grumble, they mess up, the Israelite people. They experience this, this freedom, this deliverance, this exodus, and then they grumble, they complain, they say, "Oh, why didn't you take us back there? Can we not get some better food? But they always learn to look back and still to this day look back on the exodus as the archetypal salvation event. That salvation event, the exodus stood alone for them. As they trusted this one time, they made it to the other side. And they had to continue to trust in the future, in the wilderness. But this one-time situation, this one-time salvation event of the exodus was not repeated. It was the one-time event that they could look back on and say, God saved us then, he'll save us again. He saved us then, we can trust him now. And their failure and their grumbling and they're being messed up, and they're messing up, they might have wanted to quit. But as they turned back and looked to the Exodus, they would know that the Exodus chased them. It helped them keep going for one day more, one hour more, one moment more, just to trust that little bit more, this God who saved them. Of course, now we come from a different vantage point, don't we? I said that this one-time salvation event of the Exodus was not repeated. I think we can also say that there was a new Exodus a new and better exodus. You see, this exodus points to Jesus' exodus. I don't know if you remember, we had a priest a a few months ago when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He talks with uh, Moses and Elijah about his departure. And this is the, the same word, the exodus. He's going to fulfill an exodus. His departure, his road out. His road out led to his death. While Moses stretched out his hands over the sea to make a way open for his people, Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross to to make a way for us. While Moses plunged into the waters of the Red Sea and um, all those who followed him emerged on the other side unscathed, Christ plunged into the waters of death so that following him we might pass through unscathed to resurrection life. While the waters of the Red Sea destroyed Pharaoh and his armies, when Moses stretched out his hand, Jesus brought destruction on the devil when he was nailed to the cross, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He defeats sin and death with his exodus. And so we are to look back on that cross, now the archetypal salvation event for us, that it might keep us going for one day more, one hour more, one minute more, even when we fail, when we grumble, when we mess up. And because um, there on the cross, we see goodness and mercy following us, pursuing us. With the anger that Pharaoh had in pursuing the Israelite people as they left, God in his goodness and mercy follow after us, chase after us, pursue us. I feel like this is really the main point in most of my sermons and I apologize for that I do recognize that I repeat myself but I was thinking about this maybe it's okay that um I think it was uh, Eugene Peterson's son who said to his dad you've only really got one sermon and Eugene Peterson was kind of a bit um upset at that and a bit insulted by that but uh, his son meant it as a compliment I believe and Eugene Peterson came to see that but I wonder if if my one is this That God loves you. He's pursuing you. He wants to know you more. He wants you to to be receptive to, to turning around and seeing that he's coming after you in love and goodness and mercy. And that being someone who repeats that is maybe not a bad thing. Even if there are references to Braveheart films and along the way. God's leading is subtle and not just Miraculous and visible. It's not just external, but internal. It's not just at the Red Sea, but at the cross. But most of all, it's an outworking of his goodness, his mercy, following us, chasing us, pursuing us all the days of our lives. And part of softness and allowing ourselves to trust him and believing that he is trustworthy is allowing that to to, to take hold of us and to allow that to, to, to grab hold of us and to renew us, leading us to dwell with him all the days of our lives and the life to come. So let's trust in him. He's good. Let's have a moment of quiet as we approach the table together. What would it look like to trust him this morning, to trust him afresh, to turn in penitence and in faith to trust this good God.